Last week I shared with you my favorite secular poem. This week I'd like to share another poem with you. Sort of like it's kind of like poetry time. <clears throat> this poem comes from a man named William Ernest Henley. And he knew his fair share of tragedy and suffering in life. When he was a teenager, his father died and that had a huge impact on him. He later contracted tuberculosis, which caused him to lose one of his legs that had to be amputated. Years later, uh, there was a need to potentially amputate the other leg. He found himself uh, going through a radical surgery that was new at the time that actually saved the leg from being fully amputated. And while he was in the hospital recovering, he wrote a poem whose Latin title, Invictus, means unconquered. You may be familiar with this poem. Let me read it to you. William Ernest Henley wrote, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This poem, Invictus, is very popular, and it's very powerful. And the reason it's so popular and so powerful is that it presents a very real option for how to deal with the sufferings and the turmoils and the trials of life that we all go through. I do, as much as I like the way the poem sounds, I do have one small problem with the poem. And that is that I think it is completely wrong. <laughs> It is one way of approaching the difficulties and trials of life, but it's absolutely the wrong way to approach them. We see that when we compare that piece of poetry to another piece of poetry that I'd like to show you this morning. This poem is written by a woman who herself knows something about suffering and trials and disappointment and discouragement. But when you hear her poem, it will show how wanting Henley's poem is. Her poem has been recorded for us in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I want to show you a different poem. 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you need a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat, it's page 191 in those Bibles. While you're turning, let me set the stage for this piece of poetry, just like we did for Invictus. This poetry is written by a woman named Hannah. We met Hannah last week, if you were here. Hannah's a woman who, in a culture which prized 
a woman's ability to bear children over all things, she was unable to have children. And the suffering and the pain of being in that situation was made all the worse because Hannah had a rival who was constantly provoking her, picking at her, and making her life absolutely miserable. Well, one day in the midst of this seemingly unending suffering and misery and pain, Hannah cries out to the Lord in a very powerful prayer. We looked at that prayer last week. And God answered that prayer. And he gave her a little baby boy whose name is Samuel. Now, if you remember or if you're familiar with this story, in the prayer that Hannah prays, she makes a deal with God. She basically says to God, give me a son and I promise I'll give him back to you. Well, God fulfills his end of the deal. He provides Hannah with this beautiful boy. It's now Hannah's turn to fulfill her side of the vow. When the boy Samuel is probably two or three years old, when he's weaned, she takes him back to the spot where she prayed to have him from the Lord, back to the temple at Shiloh. And she gives him to the priest that he would spend the rest of his days serving the Lord and living at the temple. It's on this day, the day that she turns her son over to God, that she writes this piece of poetry. First Samuel chapter two, it begins in verse number one. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And right away, this piece of poetry, we see a difference from the poem Invictus that William Ernest Henley wrote. In Invictus, the imagery is of that of the seemingly unconquered soul whose head is bloody but unbowed. You can kind of envision a person who's been through the middle of a fight, who <clears throat> he's taken a beating, but he somehow is managing to keep his head almost level. Hannah says something completely different. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. This is the imagery of animals who have horns on their heads. And the, the metaphor that she's using is her head is lifted high. It's not that her head is bloodied, but unbowed. Her head is lifted high. And her enemies are not standing before her seeking to beat on her more and she's refusing to give in. In Hannah's poem, her enemies are scattered at her feet. She's victorious over them. It's a very different image than the poetry that Henley was writing. But notice why her head is held high. Notice why she says her enemies are defeated at her feet. She starts the same way Henley does with lots of first-person pronouns. My heart, my horn, my mouth, my enemies. But here comes the difference. Before she finishes the first verse of her poem, she switches pronouns. My heart, 
my horn, my mouth, my enemies. But the last line, I delight in your deliverance. In fact, from this point on, the rest of this poem, 10 more verses, there will not be another first person pronoun that shows up in this poem. Not one. In fact, this piece of poetry has one of the highest concentrations of God's personal name, Yahweh, found anywhere in the scriptures. Over and over and over again, Hannah is going to speak not about herself, not about her unconquerable spirit, not about her being master of her fate and captain of her soul. She's going to talk about God. Look what she says in verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. The reason Hannah's poem sounds so different than Henley's poem is because Henley's poem is about himself. Hannah's poem is about God. That she realizes the deliverance she has experienced has nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with the God who is in control of all things. And so in verse number three, she actually rebukes William Ernest Henley. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. And by him, deeds are weighed. Hannah realizes that it's not her who is the master of her fate, the captain of her soul, that she is under the blessing of the God who controls all things. The reason she's been delivered, the reason her head is held high, the reason it's not bloodied but unbowed but instead lifted high is because of God. Last week we talked about the power of prayer. The reason prayer is so powerful is because of the one to whom it is addressed. We don't pray to ourselves. We pray to the God who controls all things. Now, Hannah's point is not just to tell us that God is in control of all things. She wants to be very specific about how this God who controls all things manifests that control in our lives. She's going to give us a very unique aspect of his control in verses 4 through 8. She's going to show us that this God who controls all things exercises his control in our lives by reversing the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Look at what she says. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry, hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. 
Did you hear what Hannah is saying about how God reverses the circumstances? That it's the hungry who end up full and those who have plenty to eat end up hungry. The mighty warriors are those who have their bows broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. It is those who are barren that give birth and those that have lots of children waste away. Hannah is telling us that the God who is in control of all things exercises his control by turning circumstances on their head. Absolutely reversing what you would think would happen. You would think that the hungry person is in trouble and that the full person is in good shape. But God completely reverses that situation. Now Hannah is not only talking about her own personal experience. She actually is foreshadowing what's going to be seen in the rest of the books of First and Second Samuel. That this God who's in control of all things, this is his modus operandi, this is how he works. He changes people's circumstances. In First Samuel, we're going to come across a man named Goliath, who to all external appearances is a mighty warrior, but he ends up broken. We'll also come across a man named David who stumbles badly, yet finds himself strengthened by the Lord. We'll come across a couple of young men who, because of their corruption, have more food than they know what to do with. Yet when God steps into the situation and ends up executing his judgment on them, they end their lives hungry and they and their descendants begging for food. We're going to meet a woman who is trapped in a loveless marriage to a man who is a fool. By outward circumstances, there is no hope for this woman, except when God intervenes, he brings death to her husband and new life to her in the form of a relationship where she becomes a queen in the land. We're going to come across a young man who, because of his physical handicap and wrong bloodlines, should have been executed and killed. But instead, because of God's grace, we'll find himself seated at the king's table. That's what God does. He reverses circumstances. That's the theme throughout the books of First and Second Samuel. A God who is in control of all things, who brings deliverance by turning the circumstances of our lives on their head. That's Hannah's own experience. Verse number five, she who was barren has borne seven children. That's Hannah. She who has had many sons pines away. That was her adversary, Peninnah. Hannah experienced God's grace in the birth of Samuel while her rival who had many children faded away from view. God is a God who reverses the circumstances of life because he controls all things. You would think it's the barren woman whose life is miserable. Hannah says, no, 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 because God is involved, everything changes. Everything is different. It's not circumstances that determine how life is going to go. It's God. God's in control. Circumstances do not dictate our life. Hannah tells us God does. Which leads her to her final point. Midway through verse 8, 
through midway through verse 10. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. William Ernest Henley says, it's our unconquerable souls that cause us to be victorious. It's our resolve, it's our will, it's our strength, it's our ability to keep fighting that after we've been knocked down to get back up, to keep going. He says that's what's going to make us successful. Hannah says that's nonsense. It is not by our strength that we succeed. It is all to do with our relationship to the one who is in control. Those who oppose God, he will crush. It doesn't matter how strong they appear to be, how wealthy they appear to be, how successful, how popular, how athletic, how whatever. Outward circumstances do not determine life. Our relationship to God does. Those who oppose this God will be crushed. But those who put their faith in him will be exalted. No matter how weak, no matter how poor, no matter how barren, no matter how many mistakes we have made, those things do not determine the course of our life. God alone is sovereign. God is the one who decides. And those who are aligned with God find themselves being lifted high despite what outward circumstances should say would happen in their life. Now, if Hannah ended right here, this would be a fabulous piece of poetry. It would really give us an insight into what she's experienced and what we're going to see throughout the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. But she adds two more phrases that make us realize that what Hannah is telling us is not just true for her life, and for the books of First and Second Samuel, but is actually the story of the scriptures. Look what she ends with. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this may sound reasonable, but you have to remember at this point, Israel doesn't have a king. They've never had a king. They won't get their first king until her little baby boy, Samuel, who's two or three years old at this point, grows up and becomes an old man and anoints the first king. So what is Hannah doing here? Well, in her poetry and engagement with God, she's come to the point of realizing that God's sovereignty and God's control and his expressed desire to turn the circumstances of life on their head finds its manifestation in the king. I have no idea why our lights went out. Don't fall asleep. Keep paying attention. (laughs) Hannah recognizes that God is going to exercise his control. (laughs) I should not say that line anymore. (laughs) All right, we're going to keep going until we can't see, and then we're going to keep going still. So 
because God's in control of all things. And circumstances will not determine how this sermon goes. Notice she says, whether you can see it or not, exalt the horn of his anointed. That last word of her poetry, that last word that she says. This is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's translated in Greek as Christos. It's translated in English as Messiah. What Hannah is saying is she recognizes that this God who is in control of all things is going to someday manifest that control through a person that he anoints as his king who is going to bring salvation and deliverance and take the circumstances of life and turn them on their head. And that's what she's waiting for. This helps make sense of a previous mysterious statement that she made back in verse number five. There Hannah said, she who was barren has born seven children. Now, when Hannah writes this, she only has one son, Samuel. But we said she's referring to herself. But the reason she uses the number seven is seven is a poetic device that talks about completion. What she's basically saying, look, this one boy's worth seven. That God has so blessed me with this one child that my life is so full and the way you express that poetically is using the number seven. It's the number of completion. But interestingly, although she's using it poetically, the God who is in control of all things is ordaining something somewhat literal with it. You see, Hannah doesn't just have one baby. We're going to find out in chapter 2 she has some other children. In fact, God opens her womb and she has five other children. Now, those of you who have advanced degrees in mathematics are thinking, um, wait a second, five plus one is six. Why does she say seven here? It's because God only gives Hannah six children because he's waiting for another Hannah to come along to whom he can give the seventh child. Another woman to whom he is going to give a promised child. That woman's name is not actually Hannah. Her name is Mary. But Mary is an inextricably linked to Hannah and we know that Because when God tells Mary that she's going to have a baby, she says a piece of poetry that sounds exactly like this. I don't know if we're going to be able to get this on the screen. Oh, we are. This is what Mary says when she finds out she's going to have a child. Listen to how similar this is to 1 Samuel 2. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the empty, the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Does she not sound like Hannah? Is she not essentially saying the exact same thing? My soul rejoices in the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. He has brought deliverance to me. He has reversed the circumstances. The hungry are now filled. The rich have been sent away empty. He considered me a humble servant and has lifted me up to a place of honor and blessing, not because of anything Mary did, but because what God has done for her. He opposes the proud. He's in control of all things. Mary is the future version of Hannah. That in the same spirit of Hannah, she's acknowledging the God who controls all things. And that this God manifests and exercises his control through his anointed one. The anointed one that Mary will give birth to, whose name will be Jesus. He will be given the title Christos, Mashiach, Messiah, that he is the one who has come through whom God wants to exercise his sovereign control of all things, and that through Jesus Christ, God wants to turn the circumstances of life on their head, that those who are hungry will be filled, that those who are broken will be put back together, that those of us who are facing death can find life, because circumstances do not determine how life is going to go. The sovereign God who brings deliverance, he's the one who determines all things. This is the truth that Hannah is teaching us this morning. What are we to do with this truth? Let me give you four ways in which I think we can apply the truth that God is in control over and above the circumstances of life to our lives today. The first, think about for a moment what day it is that Hannah writes her poem. Do you remember I told you at the beginning, what day, what's she doing on this day? She's giving her son, her two or three-year-old child. Now what would we be doing if we were sending our two or three-year-old child off to boarding school? Crying. Even if we're sending an 18-year-old off to college, we cry. But this is the day that Hannah, is she crying? No, she's rejoicing. This is the happiest day of her life. Notice she doesn't rejoice simply at the day of his birth. Why is she rejoicing on this day? Because she's giving her beloved heart, her baby, to the one who's in control of all things. I mean, what does every mom want for their child? They want protection, they want joy, they want fulfillment, they want happiness, they want good relationships, they want ultimately eternal life. Hannah knows she can't provide that for Samuel. She can't do it. She's not strong enough. She's not wise enough. She's not powerful enough. But she knows the one who is. So it's a good day, the day she gets to give her baby to the Lord. 
that God can provide this child with something Hannah will never be able to. He can give this child life forever and ever and ever. And the first application is parents. We think, and trust me, when I say we, I mean we. We think that if we could give our kids athletic success, academic success, good friendships, the right school choice, financial wisdom, good advice, a good start in life. If we could just give them those things, we will set them on the path to having a wonderful life. That's absolutely wrong. Those are just the circumstances, but circumstances do not determine how life is going to go. The very best thing parents we can ever give to our children is a deep abiding connection to the God who controls all things. Because what happens if we give them a perfect life filled with great circumstances? Is it going to end well? Probably not. What if we give them God and life goes completely and utterly and hopelessly astray? They're going to be in great shape. Because God is in control. And the thing he loves to do is turn circumstances on their head. So the first point is, parents, the very best thing we can do is give our children to God. Second, since God is in control of all things, the very best thing for us to do is to have undivided hearts that are fully and completely devoted to him. Maybe you went to work this week and you found out that things at your business are not going very well. Maybe there was a big financial scare. Maybe there's a difficult season in the business that you're in. Our first inclination when that happens is to think, how do I pull some strings? How do I make another deal? How do I spend more time at work to try to turn this around? How do I get out from underneath this debt? How do I hire some more help? How do we get this thing going in the right direction? That's a natural response. But the problem is, if circumstances don't determine life, then changing the circumstances won't help. What does help is being devoted to the person who reverses all things. And that if we come to our business situation and say, God, it's not going to be a matter of how hard I work. It's not going to be a matter of how many deals I make. It's not going to be a matter of calling in some favors from the networking I've done. Lord, you are the one who controls all things. And a heart that is fully and completely devoted to the Lord is the best bet for the struggles of life. The third application of this truth. If God is a God who, as Hannah claims he is, turns circumstances on their head, then what we normally think of as bad news is actually good news. That what we would normally classify as bad news is actually good news. That if this week you went to the doctor and received what the world would say was a bad report, that if our God is a God who turns things on their head, then a bad report is actually a good report. Not because we rejoice in sickness. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. We don't rejoice in hunger and we don't rejoice in mourning, but we are blessed because this is the opportunity for God to come in and do something. If circumstances aren't bad, he can't reverse them. He can't turn them on their head. And so God has to allow us or lead us into places where we receive bad news so that he can step in and transform it into being good news. This is true in Hannah's case. She would say to you, the greatest thing that ever happened to her was her barrenness. Because in that barrenness, she got to experience God. She got to learn the lesson that God is in control of all things. And look, if our lives are completely under our control, why would we need a God who's in control? And it's only when God allows our lives to descend into chaos. He does so that he can step in and turn the bad news into good news. And this works even for the worst news of all, that of death. You see, God has to allow death. So in his sovereignty, he can come in and reverse the sentence and raise those who by faith have placed their trust in Christ, raise us back to life. There is no eternal life without death because God is the one who turns circumstances on their head. And that means that much of the news that we heard this past week that we thought was bad is actually good because it moves us to a place where God can now do something. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, and this is why I think the lights went out today. The most important thing from this truth is that it means that we must accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. See, we've looked at two poems today. One poem, Invictus by William Ernest Henley, presents a very real option for how to live life. It's about how to deal with trials and tribulations. Everybody has them. Both Henley and Hannah say, here's how you deal with them. Nobody's saying that there are no bad things in life. But what William Ernest Henley tells you is, is it's a matter of your strength, your resolve, your ability to stand, your unconquerable soul, that you are the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. That is a very valid way of trying to approach the sufferings of life. But it's completely wrong. That what you do end up is with a head that is bloody and then ultimately bowed. That what you end up with is a life that what your strength can pertain and it's not going to be very good. Hannah offers a different choice. And it's the choice that is the gospel. The choice that we do not control all things. But God does. That when we surrender our lives to him that in that day deliverance comes to us, that we're not able to rescue ourselves and that if you're here this morning and your life has descended into chaos or into darkness, that God has allowed those things to try to show you you're not going to be able to deliver yourself. But I've come in the person of Jesus to bring you deliverance. And what it means to become a Christian is to choose Hannah's poem over Henley's poem. It means to choose Jesus as Lord instead of me as Lord. Those are the only two choices. Who's going to save you? Either you or God. And when you come to the point of realizing I cannot save myself, my sins are too great, the evil that has been done to me is too great, 
the evil that I have done is too great. And you realize that there is a God who is in control of all things. He has set the foundations of the earth. And he loves to come in and reverse circumstances. That what he wants to do is he wants to take the chaos in our lives and give us peace. That he wants to take the anxiety and give us joy. That he wants to take the sinfulness and give us righteousness. That he wants to take death and give us eternal life. And when you make that decision in your heart, that I don't want to be in control anymore. I don't want to have this all riding on my shoulders and my strength. And when you realize that our strength will not prevail, but God's strength will. It's at that moment that you become a believer in Jesus. That you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we have seen a literally visible manifestation of the fact that we cannot control our circumstances. Lord, I do not want these lights to be out, but there is nothing I can do about it. But God, even today and this morning, you have reminded us that you come into the midst of circumstances that are beyond our control and do what only you can do. So God, I'm asking and I'm trusting in faith that these lights have gone out because there's someone in this room whom Satan is trying to stop from hearing the good news and distract them from the truth. And God, I pray that you would use that to show them that life is outside our control, but it is well within your control. God, would you come and bring rescue to them? Lord, I know that there are people here today who have been trying so hard to be masters of their fate, to be captains of their soul, to have an unconquerable spirit, and they're beat tired. God, their head is bloodied. Would you come and tell them about your son, Jesus Christ, who is bloodied for us? who has come so that he might bring life where there is death. God, would you help them to believe, to see. Lord, in the darkness, let them see the light of the truth. God, I pray for those here who are already Christians, who this week received bad news. God, would you take back the veil from our eyes and help us to realize that bad news is good news because it's an opportunity for you to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. Lord, for those who got a bad report from the doctor, from those whose business is doing poorly, for those who experienced athletic or academic or musical failure this week at school or in some other way, God, I pray that in the midst of those circumstances, you would remind us of this truth, that it's not circumstances that determine life, it's you. And God, we thank you for that. How miserable it would be if it was all up to us. Our heart rejoices in you, Lord. Our head is lifted high because of you. You have delivered us. And we praise your name forever and ever. Amen.